And you may also turn to Luke chapter 7, because I will be referring to Luke chapter 7 through the course of the message this evening. But the reading will be taken from Matthew chapter 8. Read from the verse 5. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth. And to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And the servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Amen. We know that God will bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Let us seek the Lord for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray that we will hear your voice tonight, that we will know that you're dealing with us. And for those that know thee not, we pray that there would be that call of the Spirit come to their hearts. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. Amen. This centurion whom we read of in Matthew chapter 8, his faith was greatly commended by the Lord. In fact, the commendation the Savior had for this man's faith is amongst the greatest commendations that our Savior ever gave to any individual. And yet these words were given to a soldier. He was an army officer. He was a Roman. He was a Gentile. He was responsible for the forces of occupation, the forces that the Jews so greatly despised. Uh, But yet the Lord said to this man, Verily or truly, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Now, this great faith was not found in the synagogue. This great faith was not found amongst the priests. This great faith was not found among the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. It was not found among the elders. This great faith was not found among the the rulers of the Jews, the people who were schooled in the the Old Testament and the Torah. It was found in a man who was ignorant, by and large, before he ever came to Galilee, before he ever came to fulfill this post, this position in Israel. This man knew little of spiritual things. And yet, this individual from a very pagan background, this individual who knew how to exercise brutality, he rose to tremendous heights. And the Lord said of him, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. This is a message of great hope, and yet it is a message 
of challenge. It is a message of great hope for those who have not trusted Christ, who have not come to the Lord, that if this centurion could exercise faith and, and great faith, then you too can exercise faith in Christ alone. If this centurion from his background who knew less of the things of God than you do could understand who Jesus was and what he could do, then you today can come to the Lord and find life in him. And yet there is a message of challenge as well because this great faith was not found amongst those that were familiar with the Scriptures. This great faith was found in the heart of a man who had little knowledge. And those that had great knowledge were bypassed. They didn't exercise this great faith, and so it is possible that a man or a woman could sit in a gospel-preaching church, hear the gospel a lifetime, be acquainted with the things of God, and yet be passed by because you have refused to exercise faith. This centurion is a most remarkable individual. And I would like to pause for a moment tonight and think about this, this man and what we can learn about him, his great faith, and how he came to this position. And in the first place, we'll consider his consideration. This was a, a man who was a most considerate individual. Now, we read here in verse 5, Jesus was coming to Capernaum, the centurion. He comes, he beseeches him. Lord, he said, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. He was a man who cared about his servant. This servant was in all probability a slave. Under Roman law, a master could do whatever they liked to their slaves. But this man cared for his slave. He cherished him. He was a man with a conscience. He was a man with compassion. He treated human beings with respect and with tremendous dignity. That's not all that unusual where centurions were concerned. You see, centurions were ruthless men. They could exercise brutality, but yet they were resolute men. And they were men who could inspire confidence in others. They were men of very peculiar and particular qualities. So although there was a tough edge to them, there was also a compassionate side for how else could they gather their soldiers around and lead them into battle with such confidence. They had to be men who cared. And whenever they went into a locality or a community, they knew how to win the locals around. They were those kinds of individuals. And whenever you read about some of the centurions in the Scripture, you, you read about their qualities. For example, you have the centurion that participated in that awful act, crucifying the Lord. But whenever he observed the Lord, looked at the Lord, heard the Lord, whenever he saw him die, he realized this was the Son of God. And you have the centurion Cornelius of Caesarea, and he actually was the first Gentile to be converted under the ministry of, of Peter. And he was a man who obviously cared for his servants, who cherished his servants. He was a man who had a heart for God's Word, who commanded his servants to listen to the Word of God. 
he was a remarkable individual as well. So these qualities that the centurions had, they were remarkable qualities. One of the reasons why the Roman legions were so successful was the type of men that were chosen to lead the soldiers into battle. But whenever we come over to Luke chapter 7, we'll read some more points about this centurion and about his consideration for others. Luke chapter 7 has to be the same incident. They occur in the same place, the same locality. There, there's such similarities between them that it is virtually impossible that they were not the same incident. And yet there appear to be contradictions here, and we want to just work through those and understand those as well. But you come to Luke chapter 7 in the verse 2, and you read, And a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. Luke uses another phraseology. This servant or this slave was dear. He was precious in the heart of the centurion. But Luke tells us that initially the centurion wouldn't come to Jesus himself. What did he do? He went to the elders of the synagogue. In verse 3, he besought them that they would go to Jesus and ask him to heal the servant. And the elders did what the centurion asked. It shows you how the centurion was regarded amongst the locals, amongst the Jews. He was regarded with intense respect. And they did whatever he asked of them. And they went to Jesus and they said, Will you come and heal the centurion's servant? And notice how they spoke of this man in the verse 4 of Luke 7 that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation. He hath built us a synagogue. And I would suggest that this centurion rose to heights that other centurions, despite their qualities, did not rise to. The elders of the synagogue said, this man, he loves our nation. He was responsible for the forces of occupation. And yet he showed a love for the Jewish people. And he actually, at his own expense, he built them a synagogue. Perhaps he used the soldiers to do the work. It, it, it was good work for them. It engaged his men. He, he put some expense into it. He built them a synagogue. It shows you the kind of man we're dealing with. And then we're told in verse 6, And when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends unto him. So, the Lord was moving towards the centurion's house, and the centurion sent some of his friends out of the house to speak to the Lord. And then eventually the centurion came himself to speak to the Lord. And you have Matthew taking up the story in the passage that we have read, how the centurion eventually he came himself. So we can piece together stage by stage this story. But it shows us the qualities of the individual. And certainly, we can learn from these qualities. The importance of being kind. The importance of being gracious. The importance of having a good heart for others. The importance of winning others over. Centurion had, had all of these. But yet, this was not faith. He had a humble heart, as we will see. And that humble heart was 
evidenced by the fact that he didn't even come himself initially. He sent his elders, sent his friends. Felt he wasn't worthy. But that still was not faith. So all of these great things we can say about this man, they didn't save a soul. You tonight may be considerate. You may be generous, and you may be kind, and you may be forgiving, and you may have good and excellent qualities. But that's not faith in Christ. Nor will that gain you entrance into the, into the courts of heaven. And so that's the first thing we learn about this man. And what the Lord commended was his faith. But these other things, while they were good, were, were not faith. And let's also think about his conduct. How did he conduct himself? How did he conduct himself? Well, in the first place, he asked the Lord for help. And he asked the Lord for help when he heard of Jesus. And Luke chapter 7 tells us that. And when he heard of Jesus in verse 3, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. It would seem to me that the centurion asked the Lord more than once. He asked him through the elders. He asked him through his friends. He asked him himself personally. He was a man who, when he heard of Jesus, he went to Jesus. He pleaded with Jesus. He begged Jesus, will you not come and touch this servant of mine who's ready to die? I want you to intervene. It shows you the extent to which the man was willing to go to see his servant lifted from this bed of sickness. And the very fact that he, as a man of tremendous authority, probably the most powerful man in Capernaum, the fact that he was willing to, to ask for something, and to ask the Lord to do something, it shows you his spirit. But the spirit that he had, we marvel at it even more whenever he went to such lengths to prevent the Lord coming into his house. Because the Lord said, I will come. I will, I will go to your house. The Lord wanted to go to the house. In Luke chapter 7, verse 6, he went with the elders. And when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends unto him. Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. And again, in Luke chapter 8, he says this himself, this himself, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. He felt unworthy. He felt, I don't deserve Jesus in my house. I have no right. And I imagine that this man's house was a very fine house. I imagine it was perhaps one of the, the finest residences in Capernaum. A centurion would not have been living in a hovel. But he did not be filled with pride. Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to have the Lord coming to my very fine house? No, he didn't feel like that. Because he wasn't thinking about his surroundings. He was thinking about his heart, his soul, who he was. I have no right that this man Jesus should come to me. And so he was humble in every regard. But it was this humility that asked him to, to plead with the Savior, to, to ask the Savior 
to come. And dear friend tonight, if you're without Christ, you need to ask Christ to save you. You need to plead with Christ to save you. You need to cry unto Christ to save you. That's what must be done. But that requires real humility of spirit. Because in order for you to ask, in order for you to beg Christ for salvation, you have to admit that you're in, in real need. This man watched this servant's life slip away. He, he got the need. He, he couldn't help him. His money couldn't buy a doctor's assistance. He needed special intervention, supernatural intervention. Only Jesus could do this. And so he asked. And you tonight cannot save your own soul. You cannot by your own goodness or by your church attendance or by your Bible reading or by your prayers get yourself over the line into eternal life. You're dead in your sin. And you need supernatural intervention. The church can't save you and I can't save you and no one can't save you except Jesus Christ. For how can we escape if we neglect so great salvation? But you'll never have salvation without asking. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This man, he came. And you need to come. And you need to come as you are. Knowing your sin. Knowing your position before a holy God. This man looked at a servant who was dying. But dear friend, you're dying in your sin. You're dying in your sin. Do you not realize the enormity of that? Do you not realize what that's doing to you? Do you not realize how close you are tonight to a lost sinner's hell? You're but a heartbeat away from a lost eternity. That's your position before a holy God. And to stand before God, a guilty sinner, having heard the gospel, what a dreadful thing that is. Oh, you need to cry. And you need to humble yourself and you need to realize that you're lost and only Christ can save you. And if you understood the precarious nature of your situation, the dangerous position that you're in, you would not leave this place tonight without seeking God. You would not leave that pew. You'd be transfixed with horror to that pew if you understood where you were before God. Oh, that God would open your eyes. You might realize your need of Christ tonight. Well, this man asked and he pleaded. He humbled himself. But with regard to this conduct, he had the most incredible view of, of Christ's power, of Christ's deity. Because he said to the Lord in verse 8, he effectively, he said, you don't need to come to my house. Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, go and he goeth, and to another come, and he cometh, and to my servant do this, and he doeth it. I know about authority, he said. I have my servants, and I have my slaves, and I have my soldiers, and I give the orders, and they do whatever I asked. But you have greater authority than me. 
And therefore, from this position, you can simply give the word and my servant will be healed. And I believe in that authority. I believe in the power that you have. I believe that you don't need to be present where my servant is in order to heal my servant. Therefore, you can do it now. This man knew who Jesus was. He knew ever so much about Jesus. He trusted Jesus and he trusted the power of Jesus implicitly. And it was this kind of faith that drew the Savior's commendation. Remarkable faith. Dear friend, tonight, the Lord can save you where you are. You see, the amazing thing about faith is we enter into this special and this real relationship with somebody that we cannot see. With somebody who's more real than we are. With somebody who fills all of time and all of space. With somebody who became man. Who died on a cross for us. Who rose again for us. Who sends forth the Spirit into the world. Who has given us His Word. And we have His Word. And we have the people around us. We see them. People in our family, we hear them. We know who they are. Yes, man, Jesus Christ is more important than anyone because he alone is the Son of God. When life will slip away and it's what we have done with Christ, that will be the final test as to how well we have used our lives. That will be the final test because no one matters but him. And tonight I want you to forget about everyone else that's in this meeting. Forget about me. Think of him. Think of his word. Think of his truth. Think of his piercing eyes who see you. And I tell you tonight, he is able to save you where you are. Where you sit in that seat, he is able to save you. This man was saying to the Lord, you don't have to come to my house. You don't have to come. You can touch my servant now. Some people think they have to leave salvation until another time, until another moment, another opportunity, another season. Things to get sorted out. Things to address. Other things in life seem to be more important. But I tell you, nothing's more important than your soul. You need to stop where you're at, where this centurion was, at the feet of Jesus Christ, and say, Lord, you can speak the word and save me now. For that's the power of the gospel. That's the power of Christ. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus. Pardon receives. Him that cometh unto me, Jesus said, I will never cast out. And then finally we have his commendation. He went home. And when he went home, the verse 13 says, his servant was healed in the self-same hour. The time he arrived home, the servant was sitting up in bed, perhaps out of bed, having a meal, full of strength, full of vigor, ready to return to work. When did this happen? That was the time I talked to Jesus. At that very moment, the work was done. And as he went away, the Lord marveled. He said, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. The very fact that Jesus marveled. Nothing takes Jesus by surprise. And yet here we have Jesus Christ as the man Christ Jesus. And as far as everybody was concerned who watched him, he was surprised. What faith this man has. It's a very interesting way to describe Jesus because the Lord wanted to show them this is amazing faith. 
This is the faith that saves. This is the faith that brings people to me. I have not found this faith in Israel. I found this faith in the heart of a centurion, in the heart of a soldier, in the heart of a Gentile, in the heart of someone who has been acquainted from his childhood with pagan ways. This is the man that has exercised this faith. And then the Lord, this is the reason why I, I wanted to look at Matthew's account, for Luke doesn't cover this. In verse 11, the Lord said, that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The east and the west. These are the Gentile peoples. Peoples to the east. The Persians. The Chinese. The Indians. Peoples to the west. The Europeans. The Romans. But the tribes that would make up modern Europe. The Britons, the Celts, our ancestors. He said, this centurion represents all of the people from across the world that will come to me in future days. And they'll sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You know what he was saying? There's room at the cross for many more. There's room in heaven for many more. There's room at the cross for you tonight. For whosoever, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I thank God that this message of the gospel is an international message. It's a nation, it's a message for all the tribes. It's a message for all the languages. It's a message for, for all the, the ethnic groups across the world. It's a message for the entire human race. Many shall come. And the Bible tells us that in heaven there is a multitude that no man can number. Oh, it's a message of great hope. This centurion represents hope. Represents hope for you. And if you come, you'll be saved. But he also represents, as I said in the introduction, a very deep and terrible challenge. For verse 12 says, But the children of the kingdom shall be cast into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He said, Those that have been privileged, those that have had the word, those that take pride in their ancestry, say they're joined by nature to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. They're going to be cast out for they had their opportunity and they squandered it and they're lost forever. But here are people who perhaps didn't have the same privileges, but they seized their opportunity. But you all have privileges tonight. But you have to make use of the privilege. And you have to come. You cannot say, and I cannot guarantee you, that you will have another opportunity, that this night will come again, that the gospel will come again, that God will speak to your heart again. For my spirit does not always strive with man. But I know you've got an opportunity now. Oh, the plight of a sinner who's heard the gospel and goes to hell forever. Always remembering that gospel invitation. Always remembering... The pleading of the Spirit always remembering. But yet too late, too late. Don't allow that tragedy to befall you. You come tonight. You join the many that our Savior is speaking about. Who will sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And come to Christ. Put your faith in him alone. And you will be saved. Let's bow for prayer. 
you're here tonight without the Savior, I plead with you to come. I plead with you to put your faith in Christ. You can do so where you are and on that pew. Lord, save me. Lord, I'm a sinner. I confess my sins. Save me tonight. Will you do that? If you are concerned, please talk to me afterwards or slip back in after others have gone. We'll talk about the things of God. Seek to answer your questions. But get